0: This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers.
1: If there was a moment in time that I could say, what was the single most important decision that you made to catapult us to where we are today? It was when my brother Danny banned me from serving customers.
0: That's the voice of Nick Palumbo. He's the founder of Gelato Messina, Australia's best gelato stores. Maybe the best in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably true, actually. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hi there, I'm Michael Bobson. So, Michael, Gelato Messina is Australia's much-loved gelato brand, with 18 stores spread across four capital cities here, and possibly the best gelato in the world.
2: Absolutely. This is a fantastic show speaking with the founder and going behind the scenes as to what it takes to create a world-class product and the levels of obsession that we get into (laughs) which leads us all the way down to creating your own farm to ensure that you get the best milk products to going all the way to front of house how is it that you deliver a great service to match an outstanding product
0: And Nick tells us a hilarious story about when his business partner banned him from serving customers (laughs) And how that actually ushered in the next wave of Gelato Messina's explosive customer growth But first, Gelato Messina is known for having an exceptional quality product And so we started out by asking Nick to explain his philosophy towards creating the best gelato in the world
1: I always thought gelato in this country was completely underrepresented and I'm from cafe restaurant background. I'm I'm not a chef, but I've been, you know, surrounded by chefs my entire life. And when I embarked on on the gelato project, I I kind of looked at it from a restaurant's perspective as opposed to the way traditional ice cream or gelato is made and where every single flavor that we made had its own unique recipe. When you're using only natural ingredients and you're trying to formulate a recipe, there's no one size fits all because different products have different percentages of fat, protein, sugar. And when you freeze them, they all behave quite differently. And so the goal of any good gelato uh, maker is to ensure that when you have a range of 12, 15, 30 flavors, whatever your range is, that they all sit in the cabinet and have a very kind of a similar consistency and a similar texture, what we call scoopability, even though it's not actually really a word. Um, (laughs) Because you can't have a flavor where it's one's hard as a rock and one's like slop, right? So in order to do that, you need to kind of get in there and, and actually formulate and that's where I suppose the science comes in, where you work out how much sugar to add in, how many how much not to add in, how much you know milk you use versus, say, water or how much cream you would use. And it's, it's a play on all that. So that's what spearheaded the project. So I'm, if I'm going to do this, I've got to do it using only real ingredients, as opposed to the traditional method, which is, you know, you might make three or four different kind of what we call bases, and then with each base, you will make 10 different flavors, for example, by using pre-stabilized flavorings and stuff like that. So, that was the challenge in the early days. We've got it down to a bit of an art now because we do it all day, every day, but that was the philosophy from day one, was approaching each individual flavor as its own standalone dish, I suppose, or, or, or product.
2: What made you decide to take that approach? Was it just your own personal obsession about a quality product? Where did that sort of come from?
1: It's how I'm built, to be really honest. That philosophy for me, it's part of who I am and no matter what I do, how many people know this, but we design and build our own stores. We don't, we very rarely employ um, builders. We, We just do it ourselves, hands on.
2: Oh, as in you physically? Physically, You and the yeah. team. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Physically. Well, so, we, one minute they, you're making gelato, the next minute you're putting up panels. Yeah, because
1: I've tried using builders and it's never the way it should be, you know. Um, so, don't get me wrong. We, we have electricians and plumbers, and uh, but, but we kind of oversee the project as opposed to giving it to a builder.
2: These types of decisions don't necessarily always make financial sense, right? Like, I think um, there will be... Some consumers that will be able to tell the the quality, and others just go, "Oh, it seems a bit better than everything else," and they therefore come back. So sometimes it can be a bit underappreciated all that effort that you went to to not use the stabilizers or take the shortcuts. Um, and I imagine, like behind the scenes as well, it probably costs a lot more. And then everyone, you know, probably doesn't want to spend more than ten dollars on an ice cream or whatever the ceiling is. Um, how, how do you how do you balance all of the, that up?
1: It's a topic of discussion that we have pretty much on a daily basis here (laughs) Um, because it's like we go through all this energy and all this effort, but now we've got our own farms, for example, and it doesn't seem to kind of matter, you know, and it's so, you know, it gets you down a little bit. However, we always come back down to the same point and that is that, you know, we know the difference. So it all starts from there. We've had some calls where we could have gone down another path or replaced a certain ingredient with a cheaper alternative, knowing full well that honestly there would be not one person on this earth that would be able to tell the difference, but then we all look at each other and we kind of we kind of feel dirty like you know because we're ripping ourselves off and also then ripping off the customer. We hope that at some point it'll filter through and it will separate us from our competitors, and as we're getting bigger, that message is what's harder to get through if you're just one operator it's easy you're talking to every customer you're generally the owner of the business that's serving each individual customer so you can tell them about how amazing your product is we need to do that through our staff and through different channels so there's always that extra that middleman in between us the owners of the business and the customer and bridging that gap is what basically you know in my opinion retail business is all about
0: It's really clear, Nick, that you really believe in this this quality side of, you know, ingredients and the craftsmanship that goes into creating such a great product. Could you give us an example of one of these decisions that maybe doesn't make financial sense, but really exemplifies this attitude you have for quality craftsmanship?
1: How long is a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, far, far, far away, uh, the standout is, you know, the dairy farm. (laughs)
2: <laughs> i would love to know what made you decide to buy a dairy farm like that like it makes sense it's connected but i i, I can't wait to hear this story dude like honestly but you know the, the thing is I, I do it all again you know if you know so i don't reg-
1: i don't regret
0: it so can we just clarify sorry before you go on you bought a dairy farm you know with cows that go moo and I've got
2: 460 of them yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and was that because you wanted to understand the process end to end let's hear the story i'm, I'm fascinated. Pretty much, we embarked on this journey. Um, we thought it was a the natural progression, and we
1: thought, like everything, that we could do it better than anyone else. You know, we we looked at a lot of farms, and we could find all these big gaping holes in how farmers, or we thought, were running their farms. But then you get hit with a drought, right? So we're lucky because we've got a retail business that can support it right so but you know you look at these poor guys is that have been on you know, farms for generations and it's it's diabolical the position that, that they've been put in the cost of production is just way more what the, what they get on, on on farmgate we're okay because 100 percent of what we produce we use for our own products but if we had to rely on selling it to a you know Uh, a co-op at whatever it is, 40 odd cents a litre or whatever the number is, it's a joke. You can't make money on that. It's it's actually an outrage. It's really, really tough being a farmer. And there's a newfound respect for those guys because it's just, it's amazing what they need to put up with just to, you know, keep the farm running. So for us, we don't regret it at all because, you know, we have what we think is the absolute most beautiful milk possible. It's a Jersey milk. Last week, we got some numbers. At the moment, they're extracting milk at 6.1% butterfat. So, that's getting in the realms of nearly double what normal standard milk is, which is about 3.5.
2: And now in the supermarkets, you can buy these Jersey milks and and what have you as well. And so, even you're benchmarking above what you can get uh, in the supermarkets, even if you buy a high quality milk in the supermarkets.
1: 100%. Like a Jersey, at the moment, I think you're looking at around about an average of about 4.5% butterfat. Right now the reason why ours is so much higher is we do not feed our cows grain right feed them grass and we only milk them once a day and i think that alone was the single most uneconomical decision we ever made
2: yeah it doesn't make economically sense because you're not going for mass produce but then you're getting a far higher quality product and then the high quality product is predominantly going to yourself so effectively what you've done is you've shot your own self in the foot in terms of cost of goods internally plus like you've added stress on top of you know a new business that you don't know how to run, but you've done all this in the view of getting the finest quality ingredients end to end
1: one hundred percent i mean you, you you hit it on the head we, we we our cost of goods have increased um because now we're using our own milk. I mean I could buy milk at a dollar five every day now our cost of production for that milk would be just under two dollars, yeah, right, so it's a huge, huge impact on the, the P&L because, I mean, we go through 10,000 litres of the stuff a week on average. So, it's a huge hit to the P&L. But again, if you knowing what I know now, would I do it again? I'd say the answer is yes, I would. It's crazy.
0: You know, this is a very interesting uh, way of operating a business because this is not the only, you know, the dairy farm is not the only example of you doing this. You also bought a hazelnut farm to get the best quality <laughs> hazelnuts. And I read a story about you importing some very expensive piece of equipment, which makes your gelato a little bit silkier. And, you know, these things don't always make financial sense. Um, and yet you're still sitting here today saying, if I had my time again, I would still make all the same decisions. And so I find that really fascinating when it doesn't pay off financially and when, you know, 98% of your customers don't even notice. You know, you could be a millionaire if you cut some of these costs out of the business and also probably a lot less stressed you know because you're not managing three different business lines at once
1: I, I look you're hundred percent correct we would be far wealthier individuals if we didn't have all this the, the, the farming interest but what we did was because we spent more on hazelnut than any other ingredient because it's just so expensive so we thought you know why don't we just you know grow our own hazelnuts and that was another amazing experience cost us but a lot less costly than the dairy farm nick i
2: want to ask you about sort of craftsmanship clearly one aspect is this obsession in the end quality product and then an obsession about you know even controlling the supply chain to make sure you're getting the greatest ingredients if you were to sort of summarize your philosophy uh for the craftsmanship of product and the craftsmanship of you know creating in your mind the world's best gelato what would you say are some guiding philosophies or principles for you and and approaches We make everything ourselves,
1: and I think from the onset that was the holy grail for us was to be 100% self-sufficient and the hazelnut, for example, that represents kind of the last item that we need to bring in to the company because we were importing them from Italy. So for us, that was key because we said, look, once we grow our own hazelnuts, then pretty much virtually everything that goes in to a gelato messina flavor or recipe is somehow done by using raw materials and then fabricated, put together and made by us. So I'll give you an example, I mean, chocolate, we were spending about a million dollars a year on different chocolate products. So whether it be white chocolate, milk chocolate, dark chocolate across a couple of suppliers, and it was all imported stuff, right? And then it just hit me one day that Half of what's in there, especially when we're talking about white chocolate and and milk chocolate, is sugar and milk powders. So I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't seem right. We're we're importing all this product from overseas and pretty much 50% or more is commodity-style products, which we can buy here in Australia and we grow here in Australia or we have here in Australia. So we thought, okay, we're bringing in four 40-foot containers a year of these mixed chocolate products. We did a calculation and we worked out, and it's actually proven to be true, that by buying some um, milling machines and conches, we basically started buying our cocoa mass and cocoa butter from Ecuador, direct from a farm co-op. And now we import the equivalent of about one foot container of the actual raw materials that you use to make chocolate and then the rest is made up with milk powders and skim milk powder and sugars and all that kind of stuff there which we do now here in the refining process there is a slight saving but when you factor everything in it's almost a break-even scenario but we'll do that every day of the week because now we get to make our own chocolate and for us that's huge it's kind of like another piece of the puzzle that we've bought in-house the guys on the ground the chefs that work in the kitchen they get to learn another specialty that they would never have been exposed to. I mean, they get to refine their own chocolate. It's not rocket science, but it's not something that a chef comes across every day.
2: That's how we view the world. In every single facet of every single ingredient, we go down that far. So, it sounds like when you think about what it takes to build a great product and the craftsmanship in building a great product, we've talked about getting the raw ingredients in their best possible form. How do you mix this stuff together to make sure that it's a great end product um, and 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 your approach there
1: years ago we
2: used to spend a lot of time on formulation
1: and we've now got it to a point where donato who's my my business partner and head chef of messina he he took over the kitchen I think about seven or eight years ago and so all the weird and wacky, wonderful flavors that you see now, they come from him, not not as much from me anymore. The only time I get involved is if there is a fundamental problem with a balancing issue or a formulation issue. And if he's stumped, he'll come to me and say, why is this not working? And then we sit down together on a spreadsheet and try to figure out what is it that's causing this product not to behave properly in the cabinet. From a taste perspective, we may get it wrong from Customers just don't like it, and that happens every now and then. but we've never been in a situation where we go into something. Very rarely it happens that we then convert it into get a product, convert it into a gelato, and then try it and go, "Oh my gosh, that's really foul. We kind of know what the end result's going to be. The trick is just to make sure that it behaves properly in the cabinet. So from that perspective, we've got that pretty much sorted out, and we do it every day that it's kind of second nature to us. I know that a lot of competitors would be looking at us going, how are they doing it? But it's because I mean, we change across all our stores a, a flavor every day across every single store, and there's five of them every week that rotate. That is a logistical feat in itself, but to make it ubiquitous, to make it so it's uh, seamless, it's not that we're better than anybody else. It's just that we've been doing it for so long that we don't know any other way. That's how we work. <laughs> so we don't employ ex-gelato makers from Italy or anywhere else, because they'll come to this business and freak out because it's not how a traditional gelateria
2: operates. What happens if you guys concoct up some amazing flavour and it's in the five specials of the week, and then I fall in love with it, and then it disappears? (laughs) disappears. Uh, How to get that back? How to get that back again? You keep pestering us and you keep demanding (laughs) it, and then if you're lucky and you're a good boy, we'll see if we can put it back in. Do you have customers lobby for things to get on the menu then? They, they, they do. And the only flavor that we've ever then made
1: permanent was the salted coconut and white chocolate. That sounds amazing. That stuff is a special and it has been a permanent now for many, many years. It's the only time we did it. Every other time, it doesn't matter how great the flavor sells, if it's a really amazing flavor, it will be on four times a year. Okay, got it. Three to, three to four times a year, it will come back. But the thing about it is for us the special is is our way of not flexing our muscle but it's where the creativeness
2: of- yeah so it's the personality gets to come out right and, and and what's unique about your story is sort of come in each time and there'll be something a bit different and like see see what's happening and uh, almost like in the way that some of these restaurants just, you know, do stuff of whatever's local and, and fresh, you know, as opposed to, you know, McDonald's that may have a campaign for, you know, a while and there's a special, but largely it's the same menu all the time. Um, So, you sort of take that more restaurant style approach. 100%. I mean, we now get accused of kind of not even being gelato
1: anymore because because our specials have such a huge personality on themselves that everyone thinks of us as like like an ice cream brand that does all this weird and wacky things which is really ironic because the other 25 flavors i would say are the most traditional gelato flavors that you'll find in any other gelateria whether you're in rome or anywhere like you know lemon sorbet tiramisu hazelnut gianduja uh, chocolate hazelnut together all those flavors they've never left the cabinet they've been there since 2002 right however the perception is that we're not that we are this this company that comes up with all these weird flavors and the thing is it's it's again it's kind of weird because when we look at those five flavors they make up about 16 17% of our volume so i think a lot of people talk about it but the reality is people do come in and they buy lemon sorbet, they buy tiramisu, they buy vanilla, they buy hazelnut, they, they buy chocolate fondant. I don't know. It's one of those battles that we, we try to figure out how do we tell consumers that we're not this big, weird and wacky kind of company. We do a little bit of that, but it just has a bit more presence. And so everyone just assumes that's, a, well, that's what we do. <laughs>
0: Nick, welcome to the quickfire round. This is our rapid fire game show segment where we ask questions and you've got 10 seconds to answer. Are you ready?
1: I'll give it a go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nick, what brand do you look to as an example of great customer experience?
2: Apple and Ferrero. Very good. And what did you want to be when you grew up? A pilot, ironically. Okay.
0: (laughs) Wow, ended up in a very different industry. Totally different industry.
2: And what are you reading right now, Nick?
1: Um, I generally read lots of books um, on Warren Buffett.
0: Who's someone that you really admire?
1: Um, Michele Ferrero is pretty much up there. Um, The founder of Ferrero. Um, I mean, obviously, Steve Jobs as well. Um, But if I had to pick one, it would definitely be Michele Ferrero.
2: And uh, what's a non-work-related thing that you're into now? Um, restoring old cars. Okay. Any, uh, any ones in particular?
1: I was lucky enough to purchase um, an old 1976 Ferrari 308 GTB before they went up in value ridiculously. Um, basically, spent three years kind of restoring it slowly, um, obviously, on a budget, so... Because all those parts are so expensive, it turned out well because the values went up so so much. But I was really lucky to buy it at, at you know when they were not very loved.
0: Nick, where do you go to upskill? Is it books or YouTube or podcasts? What's your channel of choice?
1: YouTube, definitely. I spend copious amounts of time on YouTube, just you know, re- looking at you know people that have done uh, that are way more successful than I am.
2: All right, finally, Nick, this is a perfect question to ask you. What is your guilty pleasure dessert wise? Oh, dessert wise? Oh, dude. Uh, like everything that has sugar in it. Like
1: everything. <laughs> Chocolate, custard. Like, I love custard. Like, it's my favorite thing. Um, Nutella. Um, just straight up Nutella. Oh, oh, my gosh. It's amazing. It's just, <laughs> just Italian, Italian Vegemite. It's like
2: the best. <laughs>
0: I want to rewind the clock a little bit, Nick, and and talk about some of the earlier years of the business. And I know you started the business as the founder with your passion and love for Gelato. And then you brought your brother, Danny, into the business. And what did Danny do when he started at Gelato Messina? If
1: there was a moment in time that I could say, what was the single most important decision that you made or we made as a company to kind of catapult us to where we are today, it was when my brother Danny banned me from serving customers. Now, I need to put a bit of perspective here, okay? <laughs> so, I'm not a mean person, right? Just, so, you know, Messina had a really rocky start. When I got it back in, on my own, I basically kind of started it from from ground zero, like basically from scratch again. And so what I was doing, I was, I was kind of making everything At the Darlinghurst store and kind of also serving at the same time, right? We have a thing here at Messina called churn and serve, right? You can't ever call yourself a proper employee of Messina unless you can churn and serve, right? Which means, you know, you've got the complications of churning product at the same time you've got customers coming in. And of course, you know, there's a moment in time when you're churning when the product's ready and it's coming out of the machine. And at that point in time, you can't leave it. And without fail, every single time. You know, you're not busy. The store's not busy, but the minute the batch is ready to come out, three people show up. So by definition, you kind of walk out of the kitchen and you kind of, can you just hurry up. And my brother, who is customer orientated, kind of picked up on that and said, dude, this is, this is not going to work because even though you're being nice, you're being fake nice. People can feel the tension. So how about we do this? You just stay in the kitchen and just smile from the kitchen and don't get involved and I'll just do the front of house, right? And again, it's funny now and everything, but honestly, if I look back, that was the moment in time where the front end customer service, we always knew we had the back right. We always knew we had the, the back part of the, the product and everything that was good. But he kind of single handedly turned that front of house into the same kind of service you would expect in a fine dining restaurant. To, to a point you know obviously where you curate you know a customer comes in you acknowledge them straight away if they want 18 taste testers before they've make the final decision which ultimately generally always ends up being vanilla go figure um <laughs> after they've tried everything in the cabinet right <laughs> see this is what you can see it in my voice this is why i'm not i can't be at the front right uh, <laughs> um so And he was you know, patient, would talk the customer through it. And, and so, that is pretty much one of the single most defining moments of, you know, someone concentrating on the back of house and then someone concentrating on the, on the front of the house. And if I was to put a line in the sand of the Messina that you know of today, it, that, that's where it started.
0: So, that's a really hilarious but also fascinating story. Why do you think that is? That that's kind of the turning point of the business? Why?
1: Because I think customers then all of a sudden started coming, not just because the product was great, they started coming because there was really cool music playing, there was a good atmosphere. It still astounds me how people in our industry still open up gelato shops or ice cream shops that look like 7 Elevens. I'm just speechless. Like, I can't understand how there's no detail to ambience. When I say, ambience and design we never over design our stores you you should not as a customer come in and go oh wow look at this place it shouldn't be that you should just be able to come in, in in a messina store and just feel nice there shouldn't be anything that stands out you should be tapping to the music subconsciously not actually hearing the music you know it's all those kind of moving parts we call it the sum of the parts that make that experience when we were really flying uh, when we had less stores and you know we'd have the darlinghurst bondi and surrey hill stores that were just ridiculously cranking we would put door people on and the job of the door person was to go down the line and start engaging them in the decision-making process and telling them what specials we had so that by the time they got to the counter they kind of knew what they wanted
2: oh that's great can i say the amount of times that i've been to a place whether it's you know an ice cream place where you know in the middle of summer and there's a crazy line or you know, coffee shops at times in peak period and it's a, it's a really popular place and you're, you know, you're 15 people deep. I mean, you're there because you love the product and they've got everything else right but, oh, man, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing more annoying than being in a 15-person deep line um, and so, I was actually going to ask you how you manage that. So, that's a great experience where you basically have someone dedicated to effectively line management and line experience <laughs> which is a, an art on its own, no doubt. We discovered that people are happy to sit in a line for 15, 20 minutes and then get to the counter
1: and then go, oh, okay, what am I having? And it's like, are you serious? What have you been doing for the last yeah. 20 minutes? Yeah. So that's why we thought, you know what, let's send someone out there and get them to start thinking because I used to go outside some of the stores and, and put stopwatches. So I'd pick a person in the line and, f- and, and then put a stopwatch to figure out when they'd walk out. And the comment that we always used to have was the line is so great. It's so huge. It's actually not as long, I think the most I've ever seen anyone wait is about sixteen minutes, right? which is still a long time in retail it's it's huge. I mean thirty seconds in retail is huge, but when you consider the amount of people that are in front of this person, it's actually not that bad. you know, little things like even if the store is not busy, the minute someone walks in, you have to acknowledge them. even if you can't serve them, you must acknowledge them because you know once they've been acknowledged, they feel okay. They know I'm here. The stress levels go down. Right. We've all felt it when we go into a store and no one even looks at you for like a minute, minute and a half. It's horrible. It almost feels like you're intruding. So you have to acknowledge the customer immediately. And if you can't get to them, we tell our staff, if you can't get to them because you're busy, just say, hey there, we'll be with you in a sec. And that's it. That's all you need to do when you just
2: appease a the customer, they relax, they start deciding what they want, you get to them and off you go. No, that's great. What would you say are the key things that you're obsessive about in the retail experience? So, clearly greeting and that human acknowledgement and the patience of going through the experience and if there's a line, you know, managing that. What What are some of the other things that stand out that, that you sort of obsessive about in that retail experience? Saying goodbye. I mean, that is, you know, the one that gets
1: left out a lot. Everyone's good at greeting, that's, that's the obvious one, but not many people and, and and Danny just draws this down to the staff constantly. As they're walking out, say, thank you. Say, mm. thanks, guys. You know, just say something, you know,
2: and, and do it in your own way. There's there's no formula. There's no right way of doing it. Just acknowledge them. It's so funny. I hadn't thought of that, but there's nothing more annoying than if you go to like a mid-tier, you know, pretty cool restaurant and you've spent, you know, $100, you know, most, I would say, get the goodbye but maybe 20-30% don't and there's nothing more fucking annoying than when they forget to say the goodbye and it's like actually what, what's what's hitting me now is that it's almost like a relationship right it's like I, I have a conversation with someone and then it'd be like us just ending this conversation now <laughs> you know movie style without ever saying goodbye like, I never say goodbye in the movies yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like if we just, just ended the conversation it, it feels incomplete but I hadn't thought of it in the context of yeah like gelato but i could imagine yeah if you go out of your way to say goodbye and it's a friendly goodbye and you know thank you so much it's almost a, a great way of going full circle and then setting them up uh, to, to want to come back again and it's difficult to do when you're busy because you can't track everyone so and and so that's that's huge i mean
1: things like even the music you know declan who is uh, another business partner of messina he heads up the marketing um you know, he was a ex-DJ. So again, the music's curated to certain times of the day and everyone and the guys have got multiple playlists to choose from, but there's a daytime one, there's an evening one. So the, the guys have got a lot of flexibility into kind of curating a an experience. But for us, like even the way we serve our customers, it's kind of weird because you could be in line, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be served next if you don't know what you want. You'll definitely get acknowledged if you're the next person in line. But then what happens is when they start with, oh, can I try this? Can I try that? Can I try that? Then rather than get resisted, what our guys have been taught to do is go, look, I'll give you a taste of this, 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 and that. While you're making a decision, do you mind if I just serve that person behind you? More often than not, that person knows exactly what they want. And it kind of works really well and then... Yeah, you can keep the line moving, etc. Correct. And the trick is to make sure that you go back to that person that you just told, I'll be with you in, the, in a second. We found that you can't get away with that in America.
2: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, when we had the store in Vegas,
2: that did not work.
1: If I'm next in line, I'm next in line and you as a,
2: as a server are giving me your undivided attention. Yeah, it's like cultural, yeah cultural understandings as well
0: to wind up nick i've got one final question for you um the obvious one what is your favorite gelato flavor
2: um i get
1: paid out about this all the time um it's it's tiramisu, right no uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I need to explain why because you see back in the day when i was started to formulate uh recipes tiramisu has lots of moving parts to it so it's got egg yolks, it's got masala, which is an alcohol, it's got vanilla, it's got coffee, it's got sponge cake. So for me, um, to be able to formulate that recipe using ingredients, like the raw material ingredients to make a tin and like with muscarpone, which has got so much fat, in order to do that, that took, I mean, if today, knowing what I know now, I could do it in a flash. But back then, 15, 20 odd years ago, it took me forever to kind of put all these moving parts and trying to analyze and work out how that's going to perform in in the cabinet because alcohol obviously doesn't freeze. Right. So it's, it's a nightmare. It was a nightmare flavor. And when I finally pulled it off for me, it was kind of like, okay, I think now I'm an okay gelato maker. I think now I (laughs) kind of know what I'm doing now because if I can formulate that from scratch using all these different ingredients, it means I'm kind of getting there. So and it's one of those things. So, for me, and I just love custody egg kind of products and masala. So, for me, it's, it's definitely number one.
0: Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Guys, thank you for having me. It's been an amazing conversation.
0: Well, Michael, another great interview with a customer experience leader, Welcome to our debrief section. This is where we sum up the key takeaways from our interview with Nick. So, how did you think about this discussion?
2: I loved talking to Nick. I felt like I was speaking to the Steve Jobs of ice cream and gelato. (laughs) (laughs) The levels of obsession to get this product at that level was just fascinating. So, for me, I think the way that I thought about this conversation was... I sort of almost thought about it in two parts. Like one was to use a restaurant analogy and it came up in our conversations with uh, Neil Perry is this sort of concept of front of house and back of house and actually even in the service design conversations as well you know we talk about front of house and back of house and so you know which is one quick side takeaway is actually knowing who in your team is strong either front of house or back of house and actually the story of nick being banned from serving customers yeah uh, with front of house being everything that happens customer facing so maybe like more service orientated and sort of back of house is creating the product managing the product or If you you don't have a product, maybe your product is a service. With regards to back of house, which is this product, sort of point number one that hit me right between the eyes is this concept of craftsmanship and this obsession about building a quality product. So, I think having this mindset of approaching your product with craftsmanship really pays off. So, that's one of the big first takeaways for me.
0: Yeah, and what I actually really liked about how Nick referred to this during our discussion was that he does approach flavor development for the gelato flavors with a restaurant mentality. You know, he used this terminology about, you know, creating a unique dish every single time. And there was just this real passion that you could hear in Nick's voice as he was talking about his work. And, and I mean, they care so much about the quality of the product that you know, he's actually said in the interview, they were making decisions that may not have made financial sense. Um, but at, at the end of the day, he said, you know, we know the difference. And so, it all starts from there. So, even though the customer may not know, it's really about making something that
2: they are proud of and then taking that to market. And I think that's a great point. I might just jump in with point number two here because craftsmanship means you have this obsession about the product. And then sort of point number two is to be able to do that, you sort of need to control all the elements. And for them, it meant controlling all the way down to, (laughs) you know, the farm uh, (laughs) and and, and taking control of the milk and creating their own milk. When he talked about the way they thought about chocolate, sort of reminded me how Tesla actually approached battery making or, or things like that. They took this first principles approach, which is, well, wait a minute, like everyone says batteries are too expensive or too hard like what are they actually made of oh there's these raw materials oh i can buy these raw materials or well, maybe i could just build it myself and they, they sort of took that first principle approach to chocolate and so i think you know while it may not be right in every business at all times to go all the way down to first principles and go to raw commodities and build your own products from the ground up and own all the supply chain i think the broad point here came out in our conversation actually with madison square gardens with them not outsourcing various levels. Of of staff and delivery and so i think this sort of broad point number two in controlling the elements like if you really want to have that craftsmanship and obsession about a quality product you need to be able to control all the inputs Takeaway number three
0: was about uh, these special and limited edition products. So, I really love this model Gelato Messina has with their weekly special flavors, which means that essentially they're changing over a flavor every single day in store. And this actually reminded me a lot of our discussion with Brian Winther from Pandora Jewelry, and that was all the way back on episode number six, if you're interested in checking that out. And the takeaway there was, you know, Pandora has a very similar model with their Pandora jewellery charms. They have these regional products that you can only buy in certain places. For example, the Sydney Opera House charm is only available in Australia, or the Double Decker bus is only available in London. That really got me thinking in a similar way with uh, the Gelato Messina special flavours. You know, why do they actually do this? It's a good way to drive business demand and get people to come in for you know a limited edition product. Michael, you were having a bit of a joke with Nick there about you know if I want this product, do I have to come in and how do I get it permanently? Yes. But the real reason I like this is it creates a bit of novelty for customers to keep them coming back. And so, every time they come in, they can be excited that the product range is fresh every single time. And so,
2: that's really great for customer experience. So, why don't we switch now to uh, front of house, which is really interesting. This is where you sort of get the magic come together, where you've got an amazing product, but you also have an amazing service delivery. And so, I love this quote when he said the sort of front of house is the, the sum of all the parts. And when we were discussing this, it was clear that there was actually a lot of parts. And so, the sort of first one was just the actual overall physical experience. So, I suppose like point number four would be, you know, just being aware of the sum of the parts of the physical experience. And I think of this as almost like welcoming someone in your home, like uh, as a guest to a house party. And so, things like music really matters, like having the background music, how they had a DJ curator for different parts of the day, decor matters, you know, the feeling that you get from being in the space, and then just being a good host, which is greeting someone when they come in and and being friendly and being happy to see them come into your space and giving them a goodbye and the goodbye really matters. And when you think about having consumers come into your space, almost you're simulating the the hosting a guest experience and not only do you want that to be an initial great experience you're also building a relationship because you want them to come back and so that's why things like the goodbye really matters and so I think the sum of all the parts was really important and the sort of takeaway that I had was that this sort of physical experience is, is almost akin to welcoming a guest into your home for a house party to build on that, what I thought was actually especially
0: interesting was how Gelaso Messina deals with some of the extraneous circumstances that they have. For example, huge queues in the middle of summer. And, and so, for point number five here, um, the way that they deal with things like queue management was really, really interesting. You know, when you think about this fundamentally, you know, you might have a queue that's 15 or 20 minutes long and you've got people that are in the store deciding the flavours that they want or maybe they're paying. So, they're directly engaging with one of your staff members. And so, of course, all the fundamentals of, you know, a friendly hello and goodbye and and being pleasant and all those kinds of things matter when they are there in that moment. But you also have to think about the 100 other people behind them in the queue that haven't got to that section yet um, where they're making a decision. And so, it's worth thinking about how to cater to those people who are currently waiting in line. I mean, there's a huge potential to turn the queue into... A positive experience itself and you know gelato messina has actually done this they've got the dj they bring out a menu to get you thinking about your flavors before you go inside and you know so there's this like this moment of anticipation that's happening and so if we were to sum this up into a a single takeaway it would be you can turn waiting in queue into part of a positive experience awesome so should we sum up these takeaways Let's do it. So, point number one was around craftsmanship. And so, that obsession with quality really matters. Point number two was, you know, to be able to do this, you need to be able to control
2: all of the inputs to the experience. Not necessarily building your own farm, but uh, if that's what's required, (laughs) then go for it. Point number
0: three was add some excitement to your product range via specials of the day. Point number four is think about the physical experience as the sum of the parts. So, you know, don't forget about the music and the ambience and the decor and all those things. And point number five is to look for moments of potential customer frustration and how you can actually turn them into positive experiences like Gelato Messina has with their cues.
2: Excellent. So, if you loved those takeaways. Actually, if you love this show, then we would love not only to hear from you on LinkedIn, but it would be really helpful if you could leave a quick five-star review and a comment that helps others find our show. We personally read every single comment that goes live and we celebrate with the team. So, um, your rating and review there really makes a difference. So, look forward to seeing your review there. Speak to you next time. See ya. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by RateIt. RateIt can help you capture in-the-moment feedback, understand the insights from that, and take action to improve the customer experience. So, to find out more about how RateIt can help your organization improve your customer experience, head to the website rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com this podcast is made in partnership with Wavelength Creative. It was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the episode. Our theme songs are by iColics, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Adam Jaffrey. I'll speak to you next time.